Welcome to the SciDef Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm your host, Raymond Evans, and this is my co-host, Michael Fairweather. We're here to provide you with the cybersecurity news that matters to help you in the cyber realm. We are proud members of the Pod Bros Podcast Network. Check them out at podbros.com. Hey, hey, listeners. Welcome to episode 19 of our podcast. I'm joined this week by one of my other co-hosts, Paul Jordan's back with us, and we have a special guest this week. Hey guys, I'm Shannon. Uh, Shannon Morris, of course, is from the Hack5 YouTube channel, and she also has a podcast. Yep, I have uh, Hack5 over at hak5.org, and I also do a much less technical show called TechThing, T-E-K-Thing.com. Right on. Well, it's fantastic to have you. It's really awesome. Yeah, Um, thanks for having me. And I'm sure your opinions and insights of the topics that we have today are going to be awesome. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) So this week, we have some good stories. First, we are going to be covering how hackers can hack your chip and PIN credit cards. And after that, we will be talking about a tricky new malware that replaces your entire browser with a dangerous Chrome lookalike. After that, we will talk about a 10-second hack that could jog Fitbits into spreading malware. And finally, we will discuss Apple's popularity fueling the growth of OSX malware. We're going to hop right into our first story here and talk about how hackers can hack your chip and pin credit cards. Some researchers from Eclo Normal uh, Superiori University and the Science and Technology Institute, CEA, uh, recently did a study on a case from 2011 and 2012 where the police arrested five French citizens for stealing about 600,000 euros as a result of this card fraud. This card fraud's kind of interesting due to the way that it was pulled off. Now, a lot of things that we've been seeing when it comes to card fraud is is a lot of those skimming systems or people straight up stealing the cards from individuals and uh, using the cards that way. But this pin and chip system is supposed to be able to prevent that kind of theft. However, these criminals discovered a way of being able to bypass the authentication system that's provided in the, the chip and pin. And how they go about doing this is they overlay the chip with a with another chip called Fun Card. Now what this chip does is that when any kind of pin is typed in, the the original chip that's there gets a signal from the fun chip and then responds and says, hey, that, that pin is good and uh, allows the withdrawal or the purchase at this point of sale system. And, any thoughts on this, guys? Lots any- of thoughts. <laughs> Um, I used to do uh, credit card processing for in a bank that I used to work at, so this was right up my alley. I, I found it so fascinating. I love the fact that this is so high level. When you compare it to a lot of the previous credit card fraud that we've been seeing for older credit cards, for magnetic stripe readers, and even for ATMs, with you know uh, the little key pin hacks that we've seen before. Um, that we've read articles about online. This one is very high level in the fact that they not only had to understand how to do something such as soldering, but they also had to understand what kind of chip they had to manipulate, and they had to do a man-in-the-middle attack 
to make this work with the point of sale system. So they also had to understand how the point of sale system works. And uh, I, I just thought it was so cool being able to see so many different implementations of a hack combined into this one thing for them to steal over $600,000 in euros to make this happen. It was just so cool. It is actually really awesome. Now, a lot of people are going to hear this kind of story and not really understand the work that was put into it. It's, it's kind of like the Jeep hack that Charlie Miller had done a couple months back. People are, are going to initially hear this story, start freaking out and thinking, you know, what's the point of this, the pin and chip system? You know, what mm -hmm. good is it? And one of the things that the users have to realize is that this was an extremely sophisticated attack. This wasn't something that was done by some... Uh, Joe Schmo who was sitting in his house and just, you know, put it, like a piece of tape over the cart or something like that. It wasn't that at all. They actually had to remove the chip, solder the brand new chip onto it, know how to perform the man-in-the-middle attack uh, with this fun card, be able to program it correctly, and then reapply the chip back into the card to make it look inconspicuous. <laughs> and those are some very small parts, too. <laughs> Did they remove the chip? They actually had to remove it to solder it in oh. and then reapply it. So I guess I wonder what would prevent them from, you know, applying some sort of adhesive to the outside, you know, or the middle, you know, down the middle of that big contact to hold it they were physically stolen cards that they, the fraudsters then went to merchandise retailers and used with the new fun chip installed on them. Uh, okay. The big takeaway for this for users is that if you get your card stolen um, and you know it's missing, immediately report it stolen. Mm -hmm. uh, don't give this attack the time to be able to occur. Users need to be able to report the card stolen and have that card deactivated. Because if you don't, then, then you're going to become a victim of this kind of fraud. This was so sophisticated and so well put together that it actually took x-rays to be able to find the, the second chip applied to the, the initial chip. The forensics that, was, that were done on there, like I said before, couldn't even determine that the chip had been altered until they performed x-rays on it. That's some high-level uh, attack there. If you know, the, the forensics individuals are, are actually having trouble detecting this itself. I believe that's when they actually discovered that it was labeled fun and they were able to figure out that it's it turns out it's just this really cheap chip that a lot of hobbyists purchase to do, you know, really cool hacks at home. Uh, you can buy them for what is it, a few cents per fun chip or a few dollars. So it was kind of crazy to me that they were able to find this chip and install it on these cards. And it only was a few millimeters of a difference in the size and the width of the card, so it was barely noticeable to anybody, including the people that they went to use the card at for these uh, point-of-sales. Yeah, the chip itself, whenever they inserted the card actually into the point-of-sale system, it, they had to like push a, a little harder um, in order <laughs> for it to fit. Oh, but, no. <laughs> but that was the only difference, um, because we were, we're talking about millimeters, like two millimeters of a difference, I believe it was, or 0 0.02 millimeters of a difference here with this card. Kudos to the individuals who figured this out. Not so good for America because now the, the criminal underworld that didn't know about this uh, kind of a, attack is going to try to attempt it. I think it's important to note here, like, obviously, you know, yeah, like you, you were saying earlier, Ray, like, people are going to be afraid of this, but I think the reality is that this is a lot better than what we used to have, you know, where you just steal the card and I don't need to stick a pin, I stick a chip to it. So wherever you can upgrade to a chip and pin, 
that is a lot better than the old method, you know, because then you don't need to have a, a chip, regardless of how much it costs or, 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 or even if I could just stick it to your card and then use it, it's better. But it's still not foolproof. Like, nothing is going to ever be foolproof. Uh, they'll always find a way. I think, you know, steps that we're taking with, with tokenization, like Apple Pay and, and Android Pay and things like that, I think those are stepping, or those are walking down a road where, you know, there's there are fewer and fewer points of attack, and it's just gonna it's gonna have we're we're going to get it to the point where it used to be where you had to actually go to a bank to rob a bank, <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> One of the things that I see possibly coming down the line from this, if it, if it becomes highly prevalent, especially with uh, America having the one October deadline of having pin and chip cards from every issuing authority. The, the thing that I see possibly happening is every one of those issuing authorities working with or having some sort of certificate authority themselves in their establishment. So and, that's, uh, that's kind of the idea behind tokenization. Right? That's kind of how I, right? So you authenticate with the bank before you make the transaction, then you transmit your, your one-time use token. Yeah, so I, I very much see our pins uh, no longer being just that code that verifies you are who you are, but also being our cipher key, essentially, for our certificates that will be loaded onto the cards that, that go to uh, the certificate authorities that are, that are located wherever. One problem that I've seen in the U.S., even still, although all of my credit cards have been switched over to chip and pin, we are using chip and signature in the U.S., <laughs> and... Everybody knows that signatures are not necessarily used as a second step of authentication. Uh, the PIN is the real step of authentication, and unfortunately, a lot of those point-of-sale systems have still not been updated to implement PIN. They're still just accepting signatures. So the, the U.S., although they have implemented the October 1st deadline, and a lot of the banks and industries that do give you credit cards have actually done their job and hit that deadline, uh, the point-of-sale systems have not fully transitioned over to the most secure protocol that we have in the market for credit card processing at the moment. And that's a, that's still a serious concern for myself, yes. uh, given how easy it would be for somebody to steal and use my card, for example, at Target, who sells yep. signatures. <laughs> I was just so, going to say that. that I would me. like them to do that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, Target's the biggest one that I've noticed. They don't even, yeah. yeah. No. They don't even check your ID. It's the same thing with Apple Pay, too, or like all the contactless payments. I've, I've seen a lot of places that have the reader, they have the infrastructure in place, but they're, they have not turned it on. And it's like, guys, we did this to protect you. I mean, mm -hmm. obviously, you know, we're not going to hold the customers liable for when, when their stuff gets stolen. It's either the bank or it's you. And if you guys aren't implementing the, the latest security, then <laughs> I think the bank's going to make a pretty good case against you. Oh, yeah. They will. And I know that it costs a lot of money to upgrade those point-of-sale systems uh, just from past experience. And it costs a lot to have somebody come in and do it for you uh, for all these merchants. So I know that they're going to take forever to actually update them to be able to accept pins. But hopefully it happens soon. Well, that's yeah. the thing. They've already paid the money to put the infrastructure in place. They've already bought the readers. I mean, yeah. it really seems to me like it'd be an admin change. Like, oh, check this box in your console, and now you can accept pins. No? I mean... Well, when I worked at a um, one of those credit card processors, we didn't give them that information. We had to go in physically and 
update the configurations ourselves or we had to remotely do it if the point of sale system was accessible through the internet, which a lot of them weren't because of security problems. Um, so it, it takes a lot of time and it is a lot of money because it's labor intensive. You have to stand there for an hour and update this machine and then go on to the next one. So I feel like the USB rubber ducky would be really useful in that sense. It, it would be very, very useful then. <laughs> I would hope that you know the next generation of these machines would have a, a more uh, user-friendly way to update that stuff because, yeah, maybe it isn't their fault. Well, it's still their fault, but <coughs> I think there's more to be done uh, on the update side. Yeah, but you, you can't really make something that's that critical of an infrastructure super user-friendly for updates because what does convenience always present? Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say always. I wouldn't say always. With the right considerations, you know, if you if it's done if it's done correctly, you know, I I don't know. I disagree with that statement. I, I disagree that you, know, you can't make it more user friendly for updates. I think you can you can put a system in place where it's secure and and easy. You have to make sure that if the cashier walks away, the person standing there at the terminal can't update it themselves. Well, so fair enough. Yeah, I I think you know with the right certificate exchange, it could be done over a network though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you can't make it too user friendly. Yeah, no, I I actually would would go further away from having it be being possible on the physical device as opposed to an authenticated method over a network. The problems we face with uh, security these days, you know. <laughs> but one the the even bigger problem that that we face here is users understanding why this uh this implementation has to occur. There, there's tons of pushback that I see from this pin and chip system every single day that, that I go and, and purchase anything at a store where they have to use the pin and chip system. Users really, really need educated as to why this is good for them. And, and maybe if the users get educated and uh, understand the importance behind that, those organizations that are using that pin and signature might, might you know, have that pressure applied to them to move away from the, the, the pin and signature to the, the pin, uh, sorry, chip and signature over to uh, the, the chip and pin system. I doubt it, but... <laughs> hey, I hope for the best plan for the worst. I think it's the, the administrators and the people running the systems that need educated. Everybody. <laughs> More education. <laughs> More education's good. We're going to take a small break here to talk to you about something. Cybersecurity training has traditionally been really expensive and therefore too hard to come by for many people. The result of super high price training is a skill gap that has left the industry with over 1 million unfilled jobs, which is crazy. But Cyberary is working to change that. The cybersecurity training revolution has begun. Get free training courses and find jobs in the field at cyberary.it. Employers looking for cybersecurity talent can also post jobs there. So again, free cybersecurity training and jobs at Cybrary. So attackers are not only replacing the chips in your credit cards, well, they were back in 2011 and 2012, but now some attackers are using a new piece of malware that replaces your entire browser with a dangerous Chrome lookalike. More specifically, this browser is called eFast. This browser is based on the uh, Google Chromium open source software, which can be found on any Linux distro. The source code is out there for anybody to mess with and, and perform bug testing against. Uh, it's really easy to get your hands on. And this piece of malware makes itself 
the default browser and takes over several uh, system file associations including HTML, JPEG, PDF, and GIF. It also hijacks URL associations such as HTTP, HTTPS, and Mail2. It replaces any Chrome desktop icons with their shortcuts of their own versions. So any time that you think you're opening up Chrome, you're actually opening up this eFast browser. During the browser's use, it constantly displays pop-ups and search ads on top of the pages that you're visiting. So we all hate pop-ups. So little side note before I continue on the story, use pop-up blockers. Yes. <laughs> I say it, I, we said it in our last episode, and I'll reiterate again this episode. Use a pop-up blocker. If you're unaware that you've been compromised and all of a sudden you start getting tons of pop-ups, you might want to take a second to check and make sure that you don't have eFast installed on your computer rather than your actual Chrome browser. Because Chrome has really easy-to-use and easy-to-install pop-up blockers, so it becomes pretty obvious pretty quickly if you don't have... Chrome running if, if there's something suspicious going on. Uh, some of these ads lead to e-commerce sites and others lead to some pretty malicious web pages. And there's a really big risk in these pages that have been seen with them installing adware and malware. It's also been seen that this browser collects uh, information that could be personally and identifiable. The EFS browser website says they adhere to privacy policy. However, if you actually go to the page that has their privacy policy, you get a malware warning. So their <laughs> page that is supposed to be legit and tell you that they have a privacy policy delivers malware to you. A lot of people are getting this due to uh, bundleware. So bundleware would be a piece of software that has uh, a, a whole bunch of other pieces of software bundled in with them. So as as users are going through and clicking, quickly clicking yes and accepting every single default configuration, they're installing all these additional pieces of software as well. And the most prevalent bundleware that they've seen this associated with is a, a piece of software called Unchecky. The browser does not clearly identify itself when visiting the About page in the, system, in the Settings menu. Instead, it makes itself continue to look like uh, Chrome. What do you guys think about this one? I think this is awesome. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Awesomely awful, I hope? <laughs> well, yeah, 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 of course. I mean, I'm, I'm, always, I'm always amazed at this, the kind of stuff that people fall for. You know, when I worked as a sysadmin, my favorite favorite thing to deal with was when people got pop-ups that said your computer's infected, and they click on the link, and it's a, and then, then now they are actually infected. <clears throat> oh man, those were the worst. And to me, this is just an extension of that. You know, instead of fake malware, now we or fake antivirus, now we've given you a fake browser, uh, and then they've taken it a step further and made it look like another browser. Mm-hmm. Says so something about Chrome though that the. Uh, that it's it's so hard to actually introduce malware onto the the Chrome browser itself that they have to fully replace the browser. Yeah, that's one thing is Chrome is it's pretty good about you know showing you that you are or are not secure, and they have a lot of good extensions for that like HTTPS everywhere and things of that nature. Um, so uh, personally, I use Chrome, even though a lot of people tell me to use Firefox. I like Chrome; it it works for me. Um, but it's 
it's kind of hilarious that people are now trying to just wipe out Chrome and install their own browser to actually get you to install some kind of malware. Um, I, I would like to make a recommendation to anybody who's listening to the podcast. Use a website called Ninite or N-I-N-I-T-E, or maybe it's Ninite, Ninite, I don't know how you're supposed to say it, but it's a great website that lets you pre-install pretty much every of all of the packages that you would generally need whenever you're reinstalling a computer or reinstalling your operating system or rebuilding one, uh, and it automatically unchecks all of that kind of stuff for you so you don't end up with any of this additional um, software packages that might end up being malware. So you pretty much just skip it and you end up with a nice clean install of all of the software that you would generally use on a brand new computer. At least that's what I use and I haven't run into these kind of problems. So it works for me. That's a, that's a pretty awesome suggestion. Yeah, I, I use uh, Chrome myself pretty heavily due to the, the add-ons and how easy it is to uh, install and secure uh, a Chrome and how quickly you can do it. And the big takeaway that I say for users uh, would be to to identify everything that you're installing before you install it. If you install a piece of software, make sure you're only installing what you want. I can't tell you how many family members uh, computers have gone to and they can't understand why their browser is so slow. <laughs> they're, using totally they're using Internet Explorer still. And it's like Internet Explorer uh, 7 or something like that. And you open it up, and there's about 15 toolbars. I installed yeah. the Go Faster thing that they, they advertised on that link, and it didn't make it go any faster. You know, it's, it's all because they were trying to install more RAM. They were trying to download <laughs> more RAM. You downloaded it. Um. <laughs> okay, I've never had a family member tell me that. <laughs> And you look at their browser, and you can only see about two inches of the actual page because there's so many toolbars installed. And they refuse to uninstall them because that's how they like their browser. <laughs> but they're all search bars, so they end up using, like, six different search bars. Exactly. <laughs> so when you're installing something, look at every single prompt when you're installing it. And look at every single box that you have checked. And make sure you're not installing... These, uh, these additional pieces of software that come with this bloated bundleware. Because if you do, you're going to have a bad day and a, and, a, and a bad user experience when using any kind of browser. Especially if you have a browser that's mimicking another browser and uh, giving you more pop-ups. I think it's a great takeaway for users. I think a good takeaway for software developers and, and kind of the, the security community is code signing guys like... Mm -hmm. I think while it doesn't prevent things like this entirely, I think uh, it definitely makes things like this a lot harder because um, now you've got to steal a, a valid certificate that hasn't been revoked. And then, you know, as soon as we revoke that certificate, now none of this software will install. And, and it's just, it feels like a good mitigating technique for things like this. Or just use Linux. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Even though Linux is not fully secure either, but that's okay. <laughs> it's not fully secure, however, um, it's, it's it's pretty good. You know, I would I would not throw out that any operating system whatsoever is, you know, the, the most secure operating system because they all they all have their uh, pitfalls. Uh, 
the the Chrome lookalike is is really bad for for users, especially when they don't know what's happening. But there's something else that's that could potentially be dangerous to users that they would never know was happening, and it's happening right on their wrist. So there is a 10-second theoretical hack that could turn Fitbits into ma- malware-spreading devices. Why don't you tell us about that, Paul? So this, I found this article really interesting. Um, a good friend of mine is doing some Bluetooth security research right now, and he's having trouble finding vulnerabilities in, in Bluetooth, but not because they're not there, but because the hardware um, is difficult to obtain. This story talks about a security researcher who is presenting tomorrow, or today, I guess, um, a, a hack that he's developed where he sends an infected packet to a Fitbit uh, over Bluetooth, and this infected packet, you know, is essentially malware for your for your Fitbit. Um, but it goes a step further. So the next time you synchronize your Fitbit with Fitbit servers, you send all the normal data with this malicious code with it. So then when you go to your computer, uh, your computer, it, it seems like it, your computer pulls down the information from Fitbit servers with this malicious code. And uh, the malicious code is whatever, you know, insert whatever you want. That's why he says theoretical hack. Because um, it could be shell code, it could be, you know, insert malware here type situation. But the, I think the way he's going to demonstrate it is, you know, when you sync your computer with Fitbit, now you open up a back door for a hacker to come uh, connect to you and do whatever they need to do. Fitbit says that the the Fitbits are still vulnerable, uh, but they expect that this will be patched in the near future. Once your Fitbit is infected, um, un- until this is patched at some point by Fitbit, uh, it will continue to be infected. Um, so this gives the attacker persistence on the device. This is especially interesting because you know most of the, the work out there today kind of talks about how Bluetooth low energy and Bluetooth 4.0 are, are, are more secure. They're getting better, but this happens over Bluetooth low energy. So I guess back to the drawing board, guys, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I believe they actually also said had stated that once the device is infected, it can actually be used to spread the infection to other devices near it. Right, so that's the that's the insert malware here piece, I think. Right, so so whatever yeah. you wanted to do, there there's just a way for you to inject some malicious code X into the Fitbit, which is awesome. And it and it seems like it takes advantage of the fact that uh, Blue or Fitbit didn't implement the the Bluetooth encryption how it should be, because the Bluetooth standard is is designed in such a way that it should make this type of thing difficult, um, but you know, they, it's an implementation error, it's, it seems. The real dangerous part about this for that I see is you know there are going to be people out there who don't update the devices, especially the individuals uh, who buy these devices that have been sitting on the shelves for years. Because you know there, there are tons of Fitbits out there that are sitting on the shelves that stores just have a lot of stock of. Uh, especially because of things like Black Friday and stuff like that. So in the future, when it does get patched, and and it's uh, that patch is already on the the Fitbits that are then being produced, uh, there's still going to be a, a large swath of Fitbits sitting in stores that are, are, are unpatched, and um, those individuals who have those brand new devices are going to be susceptible to this, and 
there are going to be a, a large number of individuals who don't update their device itself and that will become susceptible to this. And, and Fitbits are seen all over the place, uh, uh, especially in, in cities, um, any major metropolitan area, you're going to see lots of people who work in, who, who work in uh, buildings with these Fitbits. Any kind of sports event, you, you see tons of people with these Fitbits. So there is a, a lot of opportunities for propagation of malware that, that this could present. And, and that's the biggest, scariest thing to me, especially if somebody creates a piece of malware that uh, utilizes the Bluetooth to hack other Fitbits. So, so say you have some marathon where maybe half or, or even a quarter of the people are, are using Fitbits and none of them have patched it. All it takes is one person running past them to be able to, to spread this malware. Yeah, I would give you a really, really fast way to spread all sorts of nefarious code. Uh, I, I thought it was kind of cool. So the code's written in Python. It's what it looks like. But it is it is still theoretical in the fact that it could spread the malware. Um, but they said that it's, you know, it's entirely possible given how easy it was to infect one Fitbit device. Um, these are... In the article, they mentioned that it's specifically for the Flex, and the hack that they show was on a Flex. However, I'm curious, because I, I have a Charge HR that I'm currently holding in my hand, and I'm curious if this has the same vulnerability, because I would love to try it on my own Fitbit, Fitbit and see if it works. <laughs> so the video demonstration has occurred, um, so we will be posting uh, the video demonstration if it's available, uh, from this conference that is mentioned. Um, we will be posting it in our show notes uh, for everybody to check out. So if you are curious as to how this works, Shannon, you can just look at our, our show notes when we find the, the video. You can just mimic what they do. Oh, I think I will. <laughs> so this, uh, this also brings up another point, Internet of Things and uh, security and Internet of Things. Now, I'm not blaming developers, Paul. <laughs> Not blaming developers here. Uh, that's a that's a big argument that Paul and I have. Is uh, for some reason I feel like you are about to blame developers. But I, I'm gonna blame the demand instead of developers here. Oh. This is going to be a huge problem in the Internet of Things world, especially with the demand for wearables. Wearables are the hot new sexy thing. Uh, out in the market. We, we see it at uh, the consumer expo shows. This past year, the wearables were everywhere. It made up a, a large portion of the show. And with this demand, it's going to put a lot of strain on developers. And uh, I think that that community needs some help. Maybe from open source, maybe from open source type communities, if the developers are, are given uh, the ability to post their code somewhere and have it looked through. Um, you know, if it's not necessarily proprietary, because some companies are going to say, well, that's proprietary information. But companies are going to have to bend somewhere, especially with this high-demand environment. They're going to need some sort of open-source community that checks for these type of vulnerabilities. And, you know, uh, hackathons. I'm, I'm talking about real hackathons, not the coding hackathons at St. Louis's taken the, the name hackathon from, but but CTF style environments need to occur. I, I think companies need to be able to do what Tesla did. 
you know, Tesla took their product out to DEFCON and they said, break our product. And I, I think these companies that develop Internet of Things products and, and wearables, they should have some sort of open environment where they invite people in for at least two or three days and they say, here's our product. Uh, you have to sign an NDA. You're not allowed to tell anybody about it, uh, of course, because, you know, uh, rivals and stuff like that. But please break it. And, it, and then when you break it, tell us how you broke it. Mm-hmm. Because the way things are going, these products are sitting in our pockets. And uh, you know, how many Fitbits do you see on a, da- on a daily basis? I see at least 10 or 15 from, from people. I, I never go pass- outside, so I see like one, my own. <laughs> <laughs> just, just passing by. I see, I see at least 10 or 15 when I'm out at the malls or, or somewhere you know, social engineering people like you and I do, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> and they have these potential threat vectors sitting right on their wrist. And with these devices being more and more integrated into our lifestyles, we're just going to have these increased uh, vectors of attack against us. What do you guys think about that? So I think that, you know, it's interesting... Um, I think that that's one good approach to trying to tackle the problem, but I think that the same the same problem exists that's causing developers to you know like kind of this discussion we've had in the past, Shannon to fill you in is is that Ray kind of suggested that a lot of these like all of these security issues uh, are brought about because developers careless developers and I and I said no I because I, I I used to be a developer I don't think it's necessarily their fault a lot of times I would scream like this isn't secure we shouldn't do this. But the powers that be, you know, they, they have different driving forces and they accept a little bit of risk. I mean, that's business, you know. Mm-hmm. So if I'm trying to get a product to market and I want to beat Apple to market or I want to beat somebody else to market, am I going to pay the security guys, you know, um, to take their, take, a, take their time, take a week, take two weeks when I can get it to market now and just accept the risk that I might be shipping it with vulnerabilities? And I think that a lot of times they're, they're choosing to make that, they're making that choice uh, consciously. At least the guys that I worked for were making that choice consciously. They they knew what they were getting themselves into, but it's it's a risk versus you know reward type situation. So I, I think honestly you know you you'd probably be better to work on some sort of policy or I know any, with today's Congress uh, that'd be probably a wasted effort. <laughs> but you know we always say in this community it's going to take something kind of catastrophic. But really mm-hmm. you know you look at the the big. Um, acts of Congress in the past that created, like, the Environmental Protection Agency, things like that, things that generated agencies, you know, that, that enforced these policies. Uh, I think we're still waiting for that event, you know. We're still waiting for something like that to happen that's going to create policy and create the need for businesses to not be able to accept or the, take away the, the business's ability to accept that risk because that's what they're doing, and, and that's what they're going to continue to do because um, at the end of the day, does it affect their bottom line? Uh, maybe it affected Target's bottom line a little bit when they got breached, but you know that's not the developer. That's not the software developer. Maybe it'll affect you know some power company's bottom line when they get breached, but again, that's not the software developer. They they wrote the contract. You know they contracted that out. I don't know. It's a tough problem. <laughs> well, if it makes you feel better, Paul, due to our discussions, I no longer blame uh, developers for these type of things. Uh, I'm teaching uh, web pen test. And I'm actually, I've actually been teaching uh, Network Plus and Security Plus as well. So when I bring up these kind of vulnerabilities that exist, people always ask me, well, why do they exist? Why do they exist? I, I now teach them what I call the developer's dilemma. 
<laughs> which which is essentially um, the the amount of work, you know, uh, versus the amount of pay, and uh, and time constraints. That's those three factors is what I call the developer's dilemma. Nice, I like it. So yes, the the developers are not to, to blame here. There's a lot more factors uh, that go into it: demand, time constraints, trying to push out your product before your your competitor does. There's there's, there's a lot to consider here. Uh, business, the, business, business, numbers, and, numbers, numbers. And the developer, <laughs> the developer community uh, needs needs help. Mm-hmm. Um, rather than I've noticed, a, a lot of my developer friends over security friends, a, a lot of the devs, they are not. They, their expertise is not infosec. Their expertise is development of whatever whatever code platform, whatever language that they studied in school or whatever they majored in. So a lot of them don't have as much security expertise as a lot of my, my hacker friends do that go to DEF CON. And I think that's a major drawback for them as well. Um, it's not their fault. It's just it's it's what they've we've been engraved to learn in school, going to school as developers and things like that. You, you don't, like other than learning about like code injection and how you, how you have to close your statements in code and things like that. Other than those kind of implementations that you put into a code language, you don't really learn anything outside of that. And I think it would be important to um, introduce that as even a class in college or something like that. So, yeah, we've had this kind of discussion before. And, and the, the, there is a class that's kind of offered as a, as a uh, like, so the, the ACM kind of dictates what gets taught in the computer science curriculum. Um, and there's a there's an elective that can be taken, and there's a, like a secure software programming, yeah. and especially gets taken a lot more. I've seen it at the graduate level, but at the undergraduate level, not a lot. Nobody of wants to take it. Right, right. <laughs> so yeah, I'll give you that, and and definitely in talking to a lot of my developer friends, you know, a lot of, or being involved with the developer community in St. Louis a lot more, uh, they didn't get security, and they, you know, it was weird how the security community was a separate community from the developer community. I feel like they should be a lot more intermixed um, than they are. Don't worry, Paul. I'm working on that. One of the things that, you know, we've we've talked about in the past is is kind of getting in the, you know, because it's the the ACM's job to do that. Um, It's the the professional association. So the Military Cyber Professional Association, of which Ray and I are both members, we are trying to do that uh, as as a professional association, kind of get in academic, get in the academic door and say, look, you know, it's very important that this gets taught because developers are kind of, you know, not getting what they need. And fortunately, there are enough good mentors with, you know, graduate degrees in computer science or who have been around long enough to kind of get that um, at a lot of places that, that, can, that can say, hey, brand developer, you know, don't write SQL code like that because it's a really bad thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but, yeah, I agree with you 100%. There, the training's not there. The education's not there yet. So there's been a, an increase of this uh, type of Internet of Things malware, you know, that we're discussing. Uh, but there's also been an increase in uh, malware from Apple as well. Why don't you tell us about that, Paul? Yeah, so this, this is an article here. I think it'll be in the show notes, right? Uh, the report will be. We will, we will put the report in the show notes. Okay, so, yeah, it's a pretty short article here. Uh, it just kind of talks about, like, like everyone's kind of been saying for years, right? Everyone, or not everyone, but a lot of people have kind of said in the past, oh, OSX is, 
you know, uh, it doesn't get viruses, and that's one big advantage of having it. Um, and while that's not true, you know, it, 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 it's not impossible for it to get viruses. It just hasn't really, it hasn't really been the target of a lot of attacks uh, in the, you know, more recent future, or more recent past, rather. But that's changing. Now that, you know, Apple's taking more of the market share and, and uh, more people are using Macs, obviously the target is growing, and so there's interest in the hacker community in penetrating that, that operating system. I think the good news is, as a Mac user, you know, the reason why I was interested in this is, um, you know, OS X is built on top of Unix, BSD Unix. So uh, I think by default, you know, there's a little bit of protection that that grants them. Um, is that going to protect uh, an idiot user who uh, says, sure, go ahead and install whatever you want and turn off all of the security features that are on by default? Uh, back to the code signing we talked about earlier. My Mac won't let me install software from you know, an unverified source by default unless I go in and tell it to, um, which I think is, I mean, fantastic. Just, I mean, great, great security practices by them versus Windows where they might pop up and say, hey, are you sure you want to do this? And, of course, everyone's sure that they want to do it, but you really have to be sure you want to do it on a, on a Mac. You've got to go into the, the security settings, put in your password, and then enable it, and then go back in and execute the installer. Um, but, you know, nothing's impenetrable, as we've talked about before, so um, I'm sure they'll find the holes. And Yeah, I think a lot of the fuel uh, from this uh, is not only a fact that uh, Apple's more prevalent. I think another factor for this is, has kind of been the boasting. You know, the, ah, you can't get us. Yeah. <laughs> We're... We don't get malware. You can't get us. Every time I talk to anybody uh, about now, this is prior to coming uh, into the cybersecurity career field. Anytime I I had talked to people outside of the cybersecurity realm, they always had the same argument for me. Uh, so I I would ask them, you know, why do you buy a Mac? You know, because I like to give Mac a hard time. I, you know, I call them really expensive Facebook machines. Um, <laughs> And, and they would always come back with the same exact thing. Oh, Mac doesn't get malware. Mac's better than than PC, which is another thing that irks me, Mac versus PC. They're both PCs. They're both personal computers. So they would say, you know, Windows is riddled with malware, and, and my Mac doesn't ever get it. Well, for a lot of people, that's coming back to bite them in the butt, you know, that kind of argument. And, and we've kind of seen that from uh, some some people in the industry as well. Different people in the tech industry have also boasted that fact. You know, hackers like a challenge. Mm-hmm. And the more you boast that you're impenetrable, that you have this fortress that nobody can break into, somebody's going to find a key to sneak into the back door of the fortress. I don't, I don't think that's Apple's doing. I think that's definitely a user thing. Um, and they've yeah. been right up until now, you know. And so that was a valid argument for buying a Mac. But, yeah, I, I think Apple's kind of been... Pretty up for up front, like they're not taunting anybody because they're smarter than that. <laughs> At least I would hope so. I've seen plenty of taunting on both sides, and I'm happy to say that I'm very much OS neutral. I use everything. <laughs> I even have an iPad. It's scary, but I do. And I use Linux, and I use Windows as well because I like my video games. And Linux is just not quite there for video games yet, but. 
uh, yeah, I I have to agree with this article. Uh, we've seen a lot of malware, a lot of viruses for Windows because it's popular. It's it's the target. It's the same thing for, you know, car thefts. People go after cars that are really easy to steal because either they they know how to break in and they know how to rewire the car car so they can steal it without a key, like in a Honda Civic, which is a very popular one to steal, as opposed to a more expensive like BMW or whatever, whatever it might be. It's the same thing with car hacks. So with Windows compared to OS or um, OS 10, of course we see a lot of malware and viruses for Windows because it's the more popular car, <laughs> quote unquote. It's the one that we see a lot of vulnerabilities for. With you know, OS 10 becoming so popular with so many people using it and with it being pretty much everywhere that you look now. Even at DEF CON, I have seen a lot of Macs at DEF CON, as weird as that sounds, I have. Um, you end up with a lot of vulnerabilities for that one as well. It's it's basically the thief going after a target that is most susceptible. And in this day and age, I think both operating systems are going to be susceptible. And we'll probably uh, see the same thing for Linux as well. I totally agree with you. Um, I, I think uh, kind of as these numbers balance out, it's it's going to be an arms race on both, on all three sides, because we've got the arms race for uh, Mac trying to make themselves impenetrable, and then the, the arms race for Windows trying to make themselves impenetrable. Then we have the arms race from the attackers. They they all have their merits, and it's we're, gonna, we're I think as these numbers balance out, we get more Mac users, and they kind of start getting up to the numbers of uh, Windows users, there's going to be a, a big arms race that we're going to see occur. Mm -hmm. I think there's another interesting analogy you could make um, to the mobile platform. Um, so if you look at Apple iOS versus you know, Android versus Windows Phone, you know there aren't, isn't a lot of malware being written for Windows Phone because there aren't a lot of users. That's, well, that's because Windows Phone is uh, stopping its service in like two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, I missed that one. But it's, it, it's got like I mean, three apps. Regardless, <laughs> I, I think it's interesting because it, it might not play out as we expect it to, or as you know, we've kind of been discussing it may. Um, if you look at the Apple iOS, like uh, I, I, I heard a figure, you know, it's it's maybe been a couple years now, that said a zero day in the iOS operating system uh, would be worth you know a million dollars on the black market because. There are so many iPhones out there. There are so many of them. Um, it's a huge target, and people tried at it for a long time. And I mean, as far as I know, nothing's really come out, you know, outside of breaking into uh, jailbroken phones because it's built on top of a, a secure platform. It's a, it's, it was implemented very well. So I think that regardless of the OS manufacturer, if they spend time on security, kind of like we talked about before, if they recognize that they're becoming a target, you know, if they're built on a, a more secure platform, I think Windows just kind of shot themselves in the foot really early on because they they were trying to be quick to market. They were trying to, you know, they weren't taking the time to be secure. And Linux era OS X got lucky that they, they benefited from the the hard work of the open source community in making BSD Linux uh, secure. That's very true. So it's going to be interesting uh, the, the next couple of years, especially with uh, the way a lot of things are going. So it's going to be exciting. Uh, it's going to be kind of scary. But, you know, it's going to be fun ultimately because, let's admit, <laughs> this, this is all a ton of fun to see uh, go down and, and try to solve the problems of. 
At least yeah. we know our jobs aren't going anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> just buy a tiny home in the middle of the forest and don't have any internet access, and you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, you know, just disappear from the grid. Exactly. <laughs> right on. Well, on, uh, on those notes, this week we uh, discussed how hackers can hack your uh, chip and pin credit cards. We also discussed a tricky new malware that replaces your entire browser with a dangerous Chrome lookalike and uh, determined that you need to make sure that you know what you're installing before you install it. Uh, we also discussed a 10-second theoretical hack that could turn Fitbits into malware-spreading devices. And, uh, you know, we say theoretical only because we haven't actively seen it occur yet. And finally, we discussed Apple's popularity that's fueling the growth of OSX malware. I was your host this week, Raymond Evans, and he was my super awesome co-host. Paul Jordan. And she was my fantastic guest this week. Shannon Morse. If you want to check out all the work that I do online for InfoSec and for tech in general, uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Snubs. That's one B, one, two S's two S's, <laughs> and Hack5, which is hak5.org. We will also put her Twitter and uh, Hack5 links uh, into our show notes as well. Stay safe, keep your network safe, and have a week.